it's amazing I'm the reason Everybody fired up this evening I'm exhausted, barely breathing Holding on to what I believe in No matter what you never Thank you for listening to the Road to Nashville podcast Part of the Penalty Box Radio Network I'm Michael Gallagher, I'm your host My, uh, my co-host Cutler Klein He's busy doing a little bit of Nashville SC stuff, but he's going to join me later on in the show. Uh, but we're going to kick things off. We got Andrew Berkshire um, from Sportsnet and the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, he puts out a lot of great content. Go follow him on Twitter at Andrew Berkshire. Um, talk a little bit of Pred stuff. Uh, the main thing is we've, we've had a little bit of time to, di- to digest what happened at the trade deadline. Uh, they bring in Mikhail Granlin, Wayne Simmons. Brian Boyle was a little bit before the trade deadline, but we'll kind of throw him in there. Um, it's, it's been about two weeks, a little over two weeks since then, Andrew, uh, how would you grade the trades, the trades, the Preds made and of the three, who do you feel was the best acquisition that David Boyle brought in? I mean, I think Granlin is by far the biggest acquisition. Um, I, I really like the moves that the Predators made. I think that so far we haven't seen everything like gel perfectly. Um, it's probably going to take a little bit of time to, to figure everything out, but I think they addressed some very glaring needs. Uh, Brian Boyle helps them down the middle. Uh, you know, they, they can use some help there and even strength. And also, uh, Boyle and Simmons give them uh, two net front presence guys on two units for the power play, which is an area that I, I'm sure many people in Nashville have noticed that uh, the power play is a topic of conversation this year. It's been brutal, and I think net front presence has been an issue for them. Uh, it allows, you know, uh, Victor Arvidsson to not be near the net. He can uh, slink back a little bit, take some shots from the, the high slot or the middle of the slot, uh, take advantage of his shooting a little bit more, at least hopefully, and uh, gives a little bit more space to to uh, Philippe Forsberg as well. So I, I think now that Wayne Simmons has finally scored, maybe things will start to uh, look a little bit better and uh, Granlin will start to fit in a little bit better. Uh, it, it's funny, you know, you look at all three moves and I think on paper, they're all great. They just haven't worked out yet. You know, I, I think Granlin is a fantastic two-way forward. He, he's, a, he's a guy you can build a second line around, but just hasn't clicked yet. And maybe it's just a matter of finding the right players, uh, the right line mates to, to suit him or whatever. But, uh, you know, Simmons is an even-strength liability right now, but a power play wizard. And I'm sure that's going to help down the stretch. I'm interested to see if this team can, you know, kind of change gears after they make the playoffs and uh, get back to what we expect from them. Because just like the Winnipeg Jets, who I've covered a lot this year, I don't think we've seen at any point the Predators or Jets play their best hockey this season. It's been it's been a very strange one. Yeah, talk, talking about both of those teams, it's kind of weird because they both have been an average hockey team over the last month or two. The Preds, you know, you could even say they've been average all the way dating back to, you know, December. Um, but Winnipeg still leads the division. Nashville's only two points behind them. Do you feel it's... A lot of, a lot of people in Nashville think that the, pled, the Preds are kind of playing rope-a-dope. They're kind of just waiting for the playoffs to start and then they're going to turn it on. Do you, do you feel like both both Winnipeg and Nashville are doing that? Or do you think they're seriously going through issues and they're trying to get it right, right the ship before the playoffs start? I think if I were Nashville... If I were playing rope-a-dope, I probably would have tried to stop that a little while ago when it became apparent that St. Louis was going to be the uh, third-place team in the Central that they'd have to face in the first round. So I, 
think there's some real struggles here going on. They're trying to fight through. I know injuries were a big part of it earlier in the season, and I think part of how we're viewing these two teams is like you know the burden of expectations is on them now, right? Like ever since Nashville went to the Stanley Cup final, they're no longer a team that you would expect to just squeak in into a wild card spot or even you know uh, not have home ice in the first round. They're a team that is in their Stanley Cup window. You expect them to compete for the division lead. Uh, they're two, two points back in Winnipeg, but they've also played two more games. So it's the kind of situation where it's kind of tough to catch up, right? And uh, like St. Louis, they're, they're starting to cool off a little bit now, but they're not a team that I'd want to face in the first round. They, they are, on paper at least, the stats say they are a phenomenal hockey team, especially at even strength. You know, you guys shut down the... Uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, who's injured right now, and they're still, you know, managing to win some games without him. I'd be worried about them. So if it was just a matter of, you know, resting it up for the playoffs, I think Nashville would have really stepped on the gas the last month or so, and it hasn't happened. So it'll be interesting to see if they can, you know, change gears, because there hasn't been evidence that I've seen, at least this season, that they're a team that is ready to do that, right? Like, you want to see some evidence that they're in a game where they're getting outplayed, uh, things aren't going well for them, and then all of a sudden, you know, Nashville of two years ago shows up and they just absolutely dominate. And we haven't, we just haven't seen that enough this year. So I, I'm not as confident in the Predators this year as I would have been the last two. And I feel like that's kind of the consensus going around, at least in Nashville, is... You know, the Preds were looked at to be a Stanley Cup favorite heading into this year. David Poyle over and over said that everyone wanted to keep the team the way it is because they felt they could win that way. And then ultimately, as the season unfolded, you found out they can't. They needed some extra They needed some extra pieces. He went out and traded for them. As it currently sits now, Nashville is two points behind Winnipeg, and they're four points ahead of St. Louis. It feels like if everyone keeps playing the way they are, that's how, it'll, that's how the order will shake out. Winnipeg won, Nashville two, St. Louis three. How worried should Preds fans be if if they if they do draw St. Louis in the first round, given they've struggled with them, you know, in the last couple of games they played against them? Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about the regular season record, just because you know I you've seen teams go like over in the regular season and then challenge in the playoffs and take it to seven or even win a series. So that's not something that I would focus on too much. But you know, of the teams that. Nashville could base in the first round. St. Louis is obviously the top one. Uh, I'm not a big believer in the Dallas Stars. I think they're too defensive, uh, too top-heavy. I think, you know, if you want to talk about top-heavy teams, the Predators are top-heavy as well in some respects with that uh, Jofa line, but they have more depth than Dallas does and uh, better defense as well. Uh, ben Bishop is great, but I don't know. He doesn't really exactly... Uh, give me a lot of confidence in the playoffs, especially with his injury history. And Arizona, I think, is not a team that's, you know, uh, <laughs> in a spot to compete at all. I think they're really lucky to be where they are. Minnesota, you know, they sold the deadline for a reason. And Colorado, I think, is another dangerous one, but, you know, another team without goaltending. So St. Louis is the one that, uh, that would really worry me. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, they're going to lose if they face St. Louis, but I would put it... You know, it's close to a 50-50 series. I think St. Louis is a pretty good team, and Nashville's a good team too, but they haven't uh, impressed me the way they had the previous two seasons this year. And kind of going back to the to the moves that were made at the trade deadline, it, it almost felt Nashville had to make a move because Winnipeg made a move. They went out and they got Kevin Hayes. And in the 12 games he's played for them, he's had three goals and six points. He's been, he's been pretty solid. Um, 
but it cost Winnipeg their first rounder and Brendan Lemieux, who's, who's a pretty good prospect. Um, it seemed like it cost Winnipeg a little bit more in their trade. Nashville, I mean, granted, they lost Kevin Fiala, who has that 30-goal potential, but he, he's struggling reaching that potential. Who do you feel made the better moves at the, at the deadline, Winnipeg or Nashville, and, and who do you think is going to be stronger in the playoffs because of it? Well, I, I like the Kevin Hayes trade for Winnipeg just because he adds an element to their attack they were struggling in, which is attacking off the rush. But at the same time, I think the big difference maker for the moves that Nashville made were that Gredlin's got term left, right? Like, So he's not going to be a rental. He, they gave up Kevin Fiala, yes, and we could argue about whether Fiala will ever fulfill his potential. Hopefully he will just because I like him as a player. But it, it clearly wasn't working in Nashville. Um I think Granlin's a fantastic player, and to, to be able to bring him into the fold for multiple runs of the cup, I, I think is very interesting and very uh, intriguing, much more so than uh, a simple deadline rental. So I would give advantage Nashville that way, but I'm not sure that uh, Nashville did enough. I, I think they could still use a little bit more depth scoring, and you know maybe that could come from... Uh, some players coming up and surprise us. Uh, you know, maybe Colton Sissons gets even better in the playoffs. But uh, as it stands right now, I think unless Kyle Turris really rebounds and finds his game again, Nashville's once again a little bit too weak in the in the middle uh, to compete. So it, it's a, it's a tough one. I'd like to see the Predators have a second line on par with their first line in terms of like relative skill, just because. That first line, yes, they can face top-line competition, but if you end up using Ryan Johansson as a shutdown forward, which he has proven he can be capable of, but you lose the offensive edge of that line, the Predators are still in a tough situation to score the rest of the lineup. And when you talk about uh, Granlin still having term left on his contract, he's got another year after this, do you... We kind of talk about this, the national media, we kind of talk about this just because, you know, we're killing time between games and stuff. Do, do you feel like the, the Kyle Terrace experiment kind of, it isn't working out. He's been injured. He struggled in the playoffs. He had a fantastic regular season last year, but he just, it's not clicking with him now. Do you feel like maybe Granlin could be that second line center next year? Or maybe they, they go when they go all in on Matthew Shane in the summer and kind of move on from Terrace? Or do you feel like they should stick it out with Terrace because he's just going through a slump or something like that? Well, I think with Turs, the injuries have definitely been a factor. Um, I don't know if last season's playoffs just like crushed his confidence or what, because uh, I think un- the underlying numbers for Turs and his line in the playoffs were not that bad. Uh, they just couldn't score. Uh, something like just incredible amounts of bad luck for that line. Uh, it just didn't work. Whether or not it's you know a, a, a failure in Nashville, I-, I think that's up for debate because I, I still on balance like that move that Nashville made as much as I like Sam Gerrard I think it made sense to deal from a position of strength to address a position of weakness and maybe the, the contract was a bit too rich too much term but I, I don't think it, I would throw in the towel on tourists yet just because I don't think you're going to get a lot for him in a trade if you if you move him out and you know a buyout at this stage would be pretty crippling cap wise so it doesn't really make sense uh, Granlund, I don't think, is as good of a center as he is a winger. I think that's the main thing with him is when you put him at center, he loses a lot of his offensive game uh, to focus on defense. And, you know, he's a, he's a guy who can push 70 points. So I think you take advantage of 
players in the best position for them in order to maximize your roster. And maybe if uh, if Turris and Granlin can't figure it out together and, and mesh well, then you have to move on from Turris and find find something else for that second line spot. And maybe the answer is Duchesne and free agency. But I, I guess that's just a story for the summer, right? I, I think yeah. with the pieces that Nashville has, they should be better. It's just a matter of finding that chemistry and maybe you have to force it a little bit and uh, live with some bumps along the road until they figure it out. And we t- we're talking about the power play. Obviously, I mean, people here lose their minds when you talk about the power play. Everyone seems to know how to fix it. and Everyone knows, knows you know, put this player here, put this player there. But it's still a really bad power play. They are improving, but they're still really bad. When you... When you shake up the lines like Peter Laviolette does, when you bring in players like Granlin and Simmons, and you put Boyle in front of the net, and it still doesn't work, is how is there a way to fix that, or is that just kind of be patient? It'll it'll come eventually. How how do you kind of look at that? Well, obviously, it depends on coaching, right? Like, what are they what are they trying to do uh, through the coaching? Are they still trying to funnel all of the attack through the defensemen? Because that's a big problem that. The modern power plays just don't run through defensemen anymore. I think Nashville has been, I don't want to say stubborn, but because their lineup is weighted more heavily towards high-end defensemen, constantly having both power plays feature two defensemen has held them back a little bit. They've done a lot of umbrella power play setups that are very, like, early 2000s. And, you know, it worked two years ago when that power play was pretty good, but when your main asset is just bombing it from the point from either Ryan Ellis or P.K. Subban or uh, having Roman Yossi try to sneak in and, and leave the point bare, I think the Yossi strategy makes a lot more sense. And maybe if you want to give Yossi some freedom, you can have a power play where Yossi is playing with another defenseman to back him up. But I would say one of those power plays, you have to put another forward on there. And maybe Nashville isn't confident in their forwards uh, to have someone else there who they think can score better than their defensemen, but then you got to have a conversation with the other defensemen and say, like, listen, you need to play like a forward. You can't play like a defenseman. You've got to be shooting from inside the slot. You can't be taking perimeter shots. Like, if you're having, you know, Subban and Ellis out there together, I, I just don't see the point in it, right? They're both good playmakers. They're both good shooters, but they can't both be firing bombs from the point all the time and expecting forwards to just recover loose pucks or try to make tips. That's not how power plays work anymore. You've got to cycle the puck down low, get it into the front of the net, go from uh, behind the net to out in the front, try to get some passes through. you got to have some defensemen, if they're in there, they've got to pinch deep. They've got to try to cycle around the puck uh, like Yossi does, like Ekholm does, be a little bit more aggressive. I, I would be on, especially the Subban and Ellis, pairing on the power play, get more aggressive. Stop uh, being willing to concede shot quality for shot for just getting a shot off. you got to be able to pinch in deep, try to beat guys one-on-one, and maybe for a short amount of time you get beat a lot on that and you go some shorthanded chances, but you've got to create some offense. If you just do nothing, and you're, you know, I think Nashville's under 10% since the new year on the power play, that's not feasible. Uh, even in the playoffs where there's less power plays, you've got to be able to put some fear into your opponents, and uh, the Predators just haven't been able to do that. And along the lines of, of kind of some weaknesses of the Predators, obviously the power play is probably the biggest glaring need um, just to, to kind of fix that in a hurry. Uh, something else that you know is kind of a lot of people here talk about it is the third pairing on defense. Yannick Weber's been okay. Matt Irwin just seems to get worse and worse as the season progressive. 
Dan Hamuse is injured. Um, with BU season potentially coming to an end soon, there's talk of Dante Fabro could potentially sign and, and, and come in with the Predators. Do you, if that happens, first of all, if, that's still a big if, if that happens, do you feel like he would do well on the third pairing, or do you feel like he would do well to just sit and watch kind of from afar and learn how the professionals play the game in the playoffs and then maybe next year try to try to make the team at the camp? I mean, I haven't watched Fabro play very much, so I, I feel like any opinion that I offer up would just be hypothetical, right? And I think in the best possible situation, you wouldn't bring a kid out of college and just throw him straight into the playoffs. It's a lot to ask of someone. But if the other option is Matt Irwin, maybe. <laughs> uh, Matt Irwin has, you know, he has moments of brilliance sometimes, and especially offensively, he can just, like, chip in when you're like, oh, that was Matt Irwin, what, what's going on? But for the most part, over the last couple seasons, you're right, he has consistently gotten worse. He's in a pretty steep decline uh, defensively. He's a bit of a mess. And, you know, Yannick Weber is as well. He's not a great defender. He can also chip in offensively, but, again, in his own zone, really struggling. So if Fabro seems to be physically and mentally ready to take on players at the NHL level, he could be an upgrade. And I don't know what Hanyu's injury is, but if I were the National Predators, I'd be hoping he comes back around the beginning of April. And another another underrated part of, of the moves that the, pre, the Preds made at the trade deadline, I feel like something that kind of gets overlooked is that, that they did, they kept Fabro, they kept Ellie Tolvanen, they kept the first-round draft pick, um, a lot of a lot of these these young commodities. Because if you look at the Preds, you know their pipeline it's pretty bare. Outside of Tolvin and Fabro, they really don't have any any prospect that kind of blows you away or anyone that you really get excited about. Frederick Allard can get there. He's he's still very young though. Um, but if Fabro does indeed sign, uh, and Ellie Tolvin is already under contract, who do, out of those two, if you just kind of had to throw a guess out there, who do you feel like would would make the most immediate impact with the Predators, Fabro or Tolvanen? I mean, if Tolvin is ready to score at the NHL level, he's the guy, right? Because I think as much as we we can worry about the third pairing, uh, in the playoffs you can play Subban, Yossi, Ellis, and Ekholm 25 minutes each, and then you've got 10 minutes to worry about for the third pairing. It's not, it's not a huge amount, right? So you can probably even play them more than that, to be honest with you. They're, they're all killers, but uh, the depth scoring is definitely something that uh, Nashville could improve on. And I think having a legit sniper that's not on the Jofa line is something that uh, the Predators have missed a little bit since they lost James Neal. So if Tolvin is able to do that, that's huge. That changes probably everything. It changes your second unit power play. It changes uh, how dangerous you are at even strength. It it would be huge. Uh, I don't know if Tolvanen is ready. I feel like everyone thought that he would be ready last year after coming uh, over from the KHL and, you know, he was scoring like crazy over there and it was like he just sat on the sidelines and everyone was kind of confused as to what was happening. But clearly the Predators judged that he wasn't ready. And uh, this year as well, he hasn't really had much of a chance uh, to, to prove that he's ready. So I don't see him you know, coming in at this late stage out of nowhere and being a difference maker. But, hey, that happens all the time. Injuries can happen and force a player into a bigger bigger role, and they can either excel or fail. And kind of wrapping up the last question I got here for you, we're, we're into the second round of the playoffs. It all shakes out the way we think it is. Nashville, Winnipeg play each other again. Do you feel like there would be a different outcome this year, or do you feel like it'll be like the series last year? 
where it goes to a seventh game, and Winnipeg ultimately, you know, kind of has their way with Nashville in the last game? Oh, man, I feel like the answer to that is so up in the air right now because how much of that series went based on, you know, how Pecorino was playing, right? So, like, if we get the Pecorino of Game 7, then, yeah, Winnipeg's going to win. That was that was a tough one, but Pecorino has put in another strong season. He hasn't been as strong as last season, but uh, still one of the league's top goaltenders. Uh, I have more confidence in him now than I had last year, simply because I, I figured last year might have been a one-off. You know, he'd been very inconsistent the previous couple of years, and uh, now he's proven that he's, you know, capable of continuing to be a top-end goaltender, so if he can not get the jitters in the playoffs the way that Hellebuck's played this year, I think Nashville actually has a bit of an advantage there, and, you know, Nashville's power play is terrible, and Winnipeg's is crazy good and in the regular season that makes a huge difference but since there are fewer power plays in in uh, the, the playoffs it's a bit of a different story and I think Nashville is the better even strength team the Jets just haven't really dominated scoring chances the way they did the year before uh, they're still a great puck movement team but the Predators their number one defensive quality this team has been limiting uh, passes in the offense or in the defensive zone so it'll be an interesting clash I feel like just like last year, they're two teams whose strengths and weaknesses kind of mirror each other. Uh, well, yeah, I guess mirror is the right word, but like they're opposites, right? So it'd be an interesting clash. I feel like that's probably the number one surefire way to get the best out of both these teams is if they face each other in the playoffs. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. It seems that no matter who's injured, who's playing, who's starting, where, who's where, it just seems like Nashville and Winnipeg always give us entertaining games no matter what the situation is. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's just uh, there's a bit of hate there. There's just like that intensity. I, I love it because this is not a rivalry that anybody would have expected, right? It's just two teams in the same uh, division that happen to get really hot at the same time, uh, come into their cup window at the same time, and they also happen to have two of the loudest arenas in the sport, which just makes it even better, right? You've got like rival chants going on in different arenas. It's uh, it's quite the spectacle. So I'm looking forward. To it. I hope we get that because. It's appointment viewing. Oh, for sure. And I, and I feel like the, the Winnipeg-Nashville rivalry is one, from 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 Nashville perspective, I feel like it's one they needed. Detroit, you know, moved out of the division, and that was, you know, the biggest rival for the Preds for a long time. And the, the Blackhawks, you can argue if it is a rivalry or isn't anymore these days after they uh, got swept. But I feel like I feel like Winnipeg, and, and the Ducks kind of here and there, but I feel like Winnipeg is that, that rival Nashville needs because I feel like whenever they play, Winnipeg, it forces them to elevate their game, and that's ultimately what, what a true rivalry does. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, the peak of hockey. Oh, yeah. Andrew Berkshire has been our guest. Uh, make sure you follow him on Twitter, at Andrew Berkshire. Um, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right, so Cutler Klein has finally joined me. He was uh, doing some National SC stuff when we, we did our interview with Andrew. Um, but we want to talk about kind of what, what Andrew Berkshire said you know, he said he was a little hesitant about signing a kid right out of college and playing him, throwing him in, into the middle of a playoff race. But he also brought up when you're when you're sixth, your fifth or sixth defenseman is Matt Irwin. Maybe Dante Fabro is an upgrade, even though he just came straight out of college. Um, Irwin and Weber, he also said, aren't both aren't great defenders. So Fabro could even be an upgrade over Matt over uh, Yannick Weber. 
Uh, Keller, just kind of give us your thoughts on that. I think that's an interesting point. Is he is he NHL ready? And even if he isn't, is he already currently a better upgrade over Irwin or Weber? Yeah, well, I think there, there's a difference between him potentially being an upgrade over what they have on the fifth or sixth pairing and coming in and being an immediate impact guy. I think, you know, last year with Ailey Tolvanen, we saw a bunch of people come in here and think he was going to be their goal-scoring messiah and, you know, save the Predators in the playoffs and become just a, you know, a superstar right away off, right off the bat. And as it turns out, he, he wasn't ready. And you know, because he's still in Milwaukee, it seems like he, he isn't ready yet. And also, so... I think as long as, you know, expectations are not sky high for him and you kind of go into understanding as the regular season winds down, you could see some time in the lineup on the on the third pairing, ease his way into the game, the NHL speed, the NHL style of play, because the jump from the AHL to the NHL is, you know, night and day. Going from college to the NHL straight away is an absolutely monumental leap to make the the speed the skill the space is just completely different and you saw the way that Ailey Tolvanen struggled going from essentially the second best hockey league in the in the world in the KHL to the NHL then now hit now with Faber coming from the NCAA I think you have to keep expectations tempered for him but at the same time Matt Irwin seemingly night in and night out does at least one thing that makes you just groan and, you know, facepalm in some way. And watching the game, the, uh, the Pittsburgh game, I mean, he nearly gave Phil Kessel a, a golden scoring chance on just a comedy of errors, couldn't keep the puck in the zone, then slipped and fell and let and let Kessel go through. I mean, that's just emblematic of the way his season's gone. I mean, Irwin's a great guy and I think a good lock and, you know, people, uh, he's, he's a good locker room presence, but he just hasn't been good. And they've kind of needed to use him out of necessity because of the injury to Hughes and because Anthony Botetto is now on the Minnesota Wild. So, yeah, I think he could be an upgrade over Irwin because Irwin has just been that bad at, at this point, you and I would be an upgrade over Irwin. Yeah, <laughs> Justin Bradford my, of the Mighty Drunks would be a, a, an upgrade over Matt Irwin. Ankle injury and all. Yeah, <laughs> ankle, it, it, one ankle of Justin Bradford. But, yeah, I think Fabro, you give him a look, you see what happens. As long as you keep your expectations <clears throat> low, I mean – it's it can't hurt. It can't hurt to give him a try with only a few games left in the season. And comparing the situations, it's kind of hard to know what you're going to get. We saw last year with Tolvanen, he came over and he was playing against professional hockey players in the KHL. He was playing against professionals in the Olympics. He had the World Junior Tournament too. So he, he had his fair share of playing with prospects and with legit actual professional hockey players and he still struggled. But Looking at Fabro, it might be a Charlie McAvoy situation where he came over from the Bruins, came over to the Bruins from BU into the playoffs, played really good in the playoffs, and was one of their one of their better players that year. It could be either or. You, it's hard to gauge because you really don't know. Just looking purely at the numbers, though, in sixty one games, Yannick Weber's got two goals and he's got eight points. He's a, he's a plus six. You know, you mentioned plus minus. Everyone hates that stat, but he he's a plus six. Don't tell Berkshire. Yeah, looking at Irwin, he's got one goal. In six points in 43 games, he's a plus four. But even still, they're not providing offense at all. They're they're not they're not going to go out and put up you know 10, 15 goals. That's just not who they are. But as as defensemen, they're both. I, I used to be a big Yannick Weber hater. I will backtrack on that and say Matt Irwin has far surpassed anything Yannick Weber ever did in my eyes as being bad. So I think you I think what happens is you throw Faber in the last handful of games, see what he does. If he holds his head above water and he plays really well. 
I think you got to play the hot hand, and, and you got to. Matt Irwin is too much of a defensive liability heading into the playoffs. To where if Fabro's out playing him, you got to stick with the kid because he's not. He's at least not going to cost you what Matt Irwin will. Yeah, well, it, it's a low to no risk situation. Matt Irwin's not playing great. Now you suddenly have a guy who could have the potential to to be better than him. Insert him into the lineup. Maybe get him with Dan Hamhuis. Put him with a, a big veteran like Hammer if you if you can if if, you, if he's back healthy in time. You let him test the waters in his in the last few regular season games. If he looks like he's ready to take on that responsibility, then maybe you do throw him in in the playoffs. If not, he's a black ace, or he'll be down in Milwaukee if they manage to get themselves back in the playoff line. But yeah. you know, it, it, there's there's no downside, I think, to trying him out because the ex because the the bar has been set at Matt Irwin. Yeah, and, and Matt Irwin, we can all agree, is, is a fairly low bar to try to pass. Right, right at this point. And, and like Berkshire said, I mean, when you're looking at this, the playoff run, and you're looking at, you know, the impact that some of these guys can make, I mean, third-pairing defensemen, because you have such a good top four, you're, it's probably, you're probably looking at around nine to ten minutes a night that you're going to need to rely on those guys. And like play. you said in the playoffs, you can you can play your top four 25, 28 minutes and only have to play right. your third pairing four or five minutes in the playoffs. Right, right. But at the same time, when you're facing off against a team like the Winnipeg Jets, potentially in the second round, or a, a, a deep, hot team like maybe the St. Louis Blues in the first round, you're going to have to have the, your details in a row. You're going to have to basically play a complete game each time. You saw what the margin of error was for the Predators against the Jets in Twenty eight in twenty eighteen in that round. I mean, it went it went seven games, but I mean the, the difference is in the details. I mean, you, you let in a couple of goals and suddenly it snowballs, and you know so those ten minutes a night could make all the difference when the margin for error is so slim when it's such a tight even back and forth series. So yeah, obviously ten minutes a night is not necessarily you know the be all end all of what happens, but when you're in a, a tight playoff series like the Predators are going to be in potentially. You're going to have to have all your ducks in a row, and Dante Fabro could provide that kind of stability to make to kind of round that out a little bit and kind of just add that little extra detail. And one thing, kind of playing in Fabro's favor too, if he does come over here, he just got out of out of a postseason tournament in college. He, you know, BU everyone they they were looked at as legit national championship contenders this year. They had a bad year. They were an average team. I think he was the second or third leading scorer on that team. He was co-captain. So it's not like he's just leaving a college season where he was playing like, with like with Grant mismatch on a bad team. Yeah, um, he's coming over out of a playoff race in college and joining one in the NHL. I mean, granted the level competition is bigger and it's it's better, but he's already in playoff mode, if you will. So it's not like it's going to be a huge adjustment for him being like, okay, well I was just playing against scrubs in college, now I'm playing against NHL players. So he might have that working for him as well. And best case scenario for the Predators is Dan Hamus comes back, he's healthy, and your your third pairing is Hamus and Weber. Um, you don't want to rush Fabro and put pressure on him, but at the same time, like Andrew said, if, if he's better than Matt Irwin, you got you got to play him now. Oh yeah, no, and I, and I think if I think Ham Hughes has definitely got to be the anchor of that third pairing, and then if Fabro's ready, maybe it's him alongside him, or if he's not, then maybe it's Yannick Weber, and then if someone gets hurt, ends up getting hurt, then Fabro could be another guy you insert in there in uh, in in relief because you know even if he's not hundred percent ready, he's he could be better. Then it's better than not than having to double shift a bunch of defensemen around. So keeping it, it, worst case scenario, he sticks around as a black ace for the playoffs and is just kind of that backup guy. But I mean, if he excels like a like the Charlie like Charlie McAvoy did, you never know what could happen. 
And w- with Faber too, when it, if he comes over here, you know, it's he, he might just end up being you know providing depth. If if Hamus comes back and Hamus and Weber play solid, you know, you keep them out there. Um, but if Hamus comes back and Weber starts thinking up the joint, and you don't want to throw Irwin out there because he's turning the puck over seemingly at will. It might be nice to be able to have a Dante Faber to go to in game four or five of the first round when your other two defensemen, Weber and Irwin, are struggling, too. Yeah, yeah. It's just good for the depth of the team. And like I said before, people set expectations for Ellie Tolvin far too high last year. With player development, you just never know what you're going to get. You could get someone who needs a little more time. And if he does need more time, and it's not the end of the world because he is a really, really good defenseman. He, and you know, and he's shown it at all at development camp for the last few years. So, you know, you 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 think about it. You know, it could be a situation where it's just you you just never know what you're going to get. If you keep your expectations low or kind of reserve your expectations for later, then I think you know, no matter what, everything's going to be fine with him. And I think the main thing with him too is the fact that he is officially signed and under contract. Everyone with. The Jimmy VC thing freaks out about any player they have in college that's, that's a, you know, a top draft pick. He is officially signed. He's under contract. They don't have to worry about him going through free agency and getting burned and all that, which we, we kind of, at, during the, over the summer at development camp, we, ha- we had that, that lengthy discussion of, is he going to sign? Is he not going to sign? He said all the right things, but in the interview he gave us at development camp, he said, ultimately, I'll have to do what's best for myself, basically. So the, it was like he basically said he wanted to be here, and he was 99% there, but that last 1% put doubt in your mind. Now that doubt's gone, and everyone's got to feel good about that, that he's officially a national predator now. Oh, yeah, no, I think VZ, Jimmy VZ, scarred a lot of people. Jimmy VZ did a prospects. number on the Nashville Predators fan base. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, he, he, like, it, it, him and Ryan Suter are, like, right up there on, on public entities number one and two still. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that kind of led people to worry no matter what ha- what happened. But I think this was a good situation for him where he could come in and compete immediately. Uh, and, you know, he could, he's, he's, a, he's ready to compete. I mean, I think the other thing with it is that, you know, he's got so many, he's got so many connections to the Predators. He's, always, he's been a Predators fan for a long time. He grew up a Predators fan. And he has two sisters who played soccer at Austin Peay. So, you know, that to me makes, it, makes a big difference that, you know, he is... He's he's a local guy in some way, and you know he's got ties here. So he's always wanted to be he's always wanted to be here, and I think that made a big difference as well. And it also it gives the Predators pipeline as a whole their prospect pool boost too. I know he was he was always one of their prospects, but he's officially signed under contract now. Now you look at it as the guy at the guys that they officially have you know quote unquote in the system: Dante Fabro, Frederick Allard, Alex Carey, three. You know, fairly highly regarded defensive prospects there. Probably Fabro gets to, to the league before the other two. But if he does end up going to, to Milwaukee, I mean, you're looking at a really good, solid blue line, a top four of Fabro, Matt Donovan, Carrier, and Allard. And plus, you have Perokta if he comes back, and some other guys down there too. So not only does it strengthen the Predators team, but it also strengthens Milwaukee if he happens to get sent down there, you know, at the end of this year or beginning of next year. Yeah, and I know this is what no one wants to talk about right now, but... Now that he's finally here, he can be seen more and more at this level by scouts of other teams if the Predators wanted to to dangle that carrot in front of some other teams to make a big trade. He can impress. And, you know, at the beginning of last year, you saw Sam Girard basically do, do an open tryout for teams that wanted to trade for him. He ended up being part of the Kyle Turris trade. 
And, you know, I, I'm not saying that's what they're going to do. I'm not saying that. But now that he's here, that is a certain possibility if if the right deal is is percolating. Yeah, if, it, if it's the right deal. We all know how much David Poyle hates to trade defensemen. And seeing oh, yeah. as in the last handful of years he's gotten rid of Seth Jones, Shea Weber, and Sam Gerrard, it's hard to see him trading another defenseman. But if the right offensive player, a 30-goal scorer, comes available and, and they want Dante Faber as a deal, David Poyle will listen because he's shown he's not afraid to go for it. And so far he's gone, I think you could say to say, at least two for three on the, on those deals. Kyle Turris, I think the jury's still out. At this point, but I feel right now the Kyle Turris trade was a lose for Nashville. Sam Gerrard is tearing it up in Colorado, and Kyle Turris is on the struggle bus here. Yeah, I know Kyle Turris is on the struggle bus, but at the same time, when you look at it, Sam Sam Gerrard on the Predators as a third pairing defenseman would be just a complete waste of of his incredible talent. And it, it would obviously make the depth incredible, but in terms of marginal returns for him, in terms of what you're getting out of him, it, it would be tough. But and, and but we're all kind of. It's a lot of speculation on that part. I mean, but in the beginning of the season, when P.K. Subban was out for an extended period of time, he would have came in clutch there, slotting in with right. the home. Right, 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 right. So, you know, it, it, but at the very least, two for three. I mean, Ryan Johansson's been a boon for the for the Predators, despite what some may say. And, you know, he is also, and, you know, P.K. Subban has been, well, P.K. Subban. So, despite what others might say yeah. about, about his performance. Repeat after us, P.K. Subban is not getting traded. No, not yet. <laughs> Despite what people up in Canada will say, at no. least not until the till beginning of next year. Yeah, yeah, no, he is he is not going anywhere. He and despite you know, and I think the biggest thing that I think happens with with Subban is that when he makes an error, it is suddenly just that much more glaring than other people, and he gets harped on more. Because but, of his personality. Because of his personality, yeah. And I think when he makes a good play, it's well, that's what you're supposed to do. When he makes a bad play, it's oh, he's the worst defenseman in the league. Right, right. I I, I, I laugh every time I see people say, you know, trades like get rid of Subban, bench Subban, trade Subban, because a lot of the times you just don't see it, but he's been the, their best defenseman on the ice. And you, you and clearly he has been hobbled up a little bit this year. He's Say, still he's still not hundred percent. No, he's still not hundred percent, clearly. But you know when <clears throat> the playoffs roll around that you are going to get the top effort and the top intensity from P.K. Subban. The playoffs is when he thrives. And I think you're going to see that again this year, no matter how the Predators do in the playoffs. And Colton Sisson is another one of those players, when the playoffs come, he turns it up. He's, it's almost like playoff Colin Wilson, playoff Colton Sisson. He's, <laughs> he's just a beast in the playoffs for whatever reason. Yeah, pl- playoff Colton Sisson, except in the regular season, he's actually pretty solid too. <laughs> uh, kind of last thing I want to talk about before we head out of here. Um, I want us to be able to, to kind of discuss and give our grades on the Predators' moves at the trade deadline. We heard what, what Andrew had to say in his analysis of, of the moves. Um, and one thing he brought up that I, that I want to kind of touch on is Mikhail Granlin. You know, he said he's got term on his contract. He's got one more year. He liked that move because of that. You're, you're, you're I don't want to say giving up, but you're, you're sending Kevin Fiala and his 30-goal potential to Minnesota, but you're getting back Mikhail Granlin, who's a proven 20-25 goal scorer, and who's who's better on the wing than he is at center? Having having someone like that that can play both center and wing on the second line, potentially the third line if you know all things work out or whatever. Having someone like that, he's only got a goal and four points since they've traded for him, but he's shown flashes where it's like, man, this guy in the second line, him with Sissons and Smith or Yarncroke or whoever they throw out there, just it looks like it has potential for a really good depth scoring line in the playoffs. Oh yeah, no, and and I think. Him, Boyle, and Simmons will admit as much that, you know, it takes some time to gel with these new teammates, and it yeah. takes a little bit of time to figure out tendencies, you know. You, you have we're to get only 15 games more. into having them with a the team, too. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think getting a full camp next year for Granlin would be a big deal. And, you know, Brian Boyle, I think they would be 
remiss if they didn't bring him, try try and bring him back to the squad next year. Because I think Brian Boyle is an A plus acquisition. I mean, he's got five goals. He's winning fifty five point six percent of his face offs. He on power plays goes to the front of the net, parks his butt right in front of the goalie, and he gets those chipping goals. He's doing exactly what they thought he would be. I think he is by far one of David Poyle's best acquisitions, trade acquisitions. Right, and I think the other thing you see with the way that they did this, I mean, Granlin is just is a is a solid scorer that's going to provide you know middle middle lines scoring. But then you look at what Simmons and Boyle bring to the table, and it's what we kind of saw with the Winnipeg series last year. At some points, the Predators just got bullied because they didn't have the size to match guys like Myers and Bufflin. Now they do. Wayne Simmons, big dude. Brian Boyle, humongous human being. And they're going to go right in front of the goalie, which is what's what the way Connor Hellebuck's playing. If you if you provide a big-bodied screen in front of him, I think you can get some more goals that you haven't been getting against them. Right. Yeah. And and I think overall. Adding that size, and you know, you might say that Simmons and Boyle kind of fill the same role. I'm not necessarily sure that's the case, just because they provide different big body skill sets. But you you look at the way this team stacks up against Winnipeg in on paper, on paper now, because obviously the Predators and Jets have had slightly different variations of this season. The Predators have struggled down basically since November. The Jets have been more or less a little more consistent, and you know this team. If they have, if they get their their momentum right, have the size now to compete a little bit better with Winnipeg, and I think that makes a world of difference. And Andrew kind of touched on that too. He said the way Connor Hellebuck is playing this year and the way he's been playing down the stretch, he likes the Predators' chances against the Jets just because. Don't don't get me wrong. The Predators have been struggling more recently than the Jets, but the Jets have also kind of been up and down as well. Like you said, they're they've been a little bit more consistent. They're still in first place in the division, but things are kind of evening out a little bit. And with, with Granlin and Simmons and Boyle now, not only do you have the big-bodied physical presence that you were lacking last year, you have you have people that can go screen the goalie. When you have people that are screening the goalie, that frees up Victor Arvidsson to go out to the point and just take shot after shot after shot out there. Or he could be skating around just pissing everybody off because he's so fast, he's in your way. Um, so not only does it open up Arvidsson on the power play, and granted, the power play is still really bad, but... We've seen signs since the trade deadline of it getting better and improving. They're doing more. They're not just playing tic-tac-toe with their passes. They're actually trying to set stuff up. So maybe it'll, it'll come along and it'll click in the playoffs. But with Boyle, Graylin, and Simmons, you can tell this team's playing a lot better. The results may not necessarily be there, but they're, they're playing better to show optimism to where if you do play Winnipeg in the second round, it's not going to be as bad as, as you would have thought it was you know, a month ago before they had those three guys. Yeah, and... Right now, all that matters is over the next few games, they build a little momentum, they get themselves in the right places. Obviously, the performance at Winnipeg was unacceptable, and it was not where they want to be by any stretch of the imagination, and it might just cost them the division. So I think when you look at the way this team needs to play down the stretch, they need to show just some more of those flashes, and I think you'll see that this team, once you, once you get that playoff intensity, once you get that playoff mindset, you know they're not, they're not coasting into the playoffs right now. They are trying... To get it all together, and they're still thinking division title. Yeah, no, and they're still within a couple of points of that. And I think they obviously need some help from Winnipeg uh, going down the stretch. But you have a few games to get it together. You have a few games to to settle everything down. Or all it takes is is two or three wins strung along together to suddenly say, you know, this team is this team is heating up right now. Is the time to do it. And I think if you if you get it together, you know, people talked last year about the team peaking at the right time. I think this team needs to peak. Period. And I think that it, and it hasn't happened yet, but I think it could it could soon if they can find the right combinations because the talent is there on this roster to do it. It just needs to actually happen. 
And if you look at the, their Stanley Cup run they made a couple years ago, they got in as the six as the sixth seed in the Western Conference. They were they were the twelfth overall seed. So they were dead last. No one thought they even had a shot. Everyone was picking Chicago to beat them. They come out and they they like you said they got hot at the right time. They ran through everyone and they got to the Stanley Cup final without Kevin Fiala and Ryan Johansson as well and Mike Fisher for a game or two. Um, so they've proven that. Even even if they just barely get into the playoffs, which obviously they've already clinched out, but even if they just barely get into the playoffs, they have the they can turn it on and get hot at the right time and make a run. I mean, them beating the Winnipeg Jets in the second round isn't you know so far out of the realm of possibility now because they are playing better and they have a they have a more physical team and a net for presence that they didn't have a month ago. Yeah, and and the end of that of that regular season in 2017. Predators were, were playing well, but by no means were they, you know, roaring hot. They didn't come in on some massive winning streak or anything. I mean, they were they were fine, but they weren't great. And so I don't, I, and I don't think anyone was saying, oh, this is the hot team. You don't want to face the Predators right now. And then they go out and put together a, a four-game stretch for the ages. And no one thought they would get past house. Chicago. Yeah, and then once you got past Chicago, you start thinking, you know, you know, then you have that momentum. So I think the way they start the first-round series is going to be huge as well. And... If they can, you know, even just, regardless of the wins or losses, just build positively, play play well. Even if you lose in the end of these games, you know, just playing well in general is, is something that's going to, to make a big difference. And kind of the last thing I want to touch on real quick, um, I think, and Andrew and I talked about this a little bit, the, the most underrated part of the trade deadline was they kept Fabro, they kept Tolvanen, they kept the first-round draft pick. Outside of the second round and the fourth-round picks they gave up, they kept a lot of their their uh, their draft draft capital with them. I think that's huge going forward because outside of Tolvin and Fabro, who are both now officially under contract, um, outside of those two, the pro- the prospect pool is is very shallow. They don't have a lot of guys to get you excited. Grant Mismash, maybe um, David Ferentz has shown flashes, but he's also he's not where you'd like him to be. Frederick Allard, I think, is probably their third best prospect now. They traded Emil Pedersen. Having that first round draft pick. And still having your later round draft picks, I think, is going to be is going to make a world of difference because now they can start to rebuild that prospect pool, which was so strong two years ago. And now with trading Sam Gerrard and Vladislav Kamenev, like they're outside of Fabro and Tolvin, you don't really have any prospects that kind of excite you. Yeah, yeah, and I think this this draft because they have a first rounder and they have a bunch of other picks outside of you know a couple of rounds, like you said, where they've used those picks in trades. This is a year for them to kind of restock the pipeline a little bit, get a few more guys in there. Now, obviously, they don't have a, a, a you know an immediate need to to fill a lot of spots. They don't need a prospect that's going to be ready in one to two years to, to come in there. But they need to start restocking because eventually when a lot of these contracts come up and players demand big paydays, they can't fill all of them. You, you're, you're not going to – you're very rarely going to get two team-friendly contracts in a row. Yeah. And, you know, once once the cap crunch comes comes together – you're, you're, you're gonna be in, you could be in a little bit of trouble and I think that's when you know three four five years down the line you're gonna want some rookie guys to come in on their rookie deals and and be able to contribute and you're gonna be looking at in a year or two Yossi getting nine to ten million a year Ekholm is gonna get a raise probably around what Ryan Ellis is making now somewhere in there um, if you decide to, to you know renew PK Subban's contract when it ends um, in three or four years what what kind of contract is UC Saros gonna get he's gonna be making way more than than you know, the, the team-friendly deal he's got now. So it's a great point having those draft picks in your back pocket, especially your first-round pick, because even if it's pick 30, 31, whatever, if it's the last pick of the first round, 
it's still a first round draft pick. Just having that the first round label on it still means that it's it's big, um, and it's, it'll, it'll go a long way. Yakin Kondalik had a, had a great season. He was a fourth round draft pick. He had a great season. In a year or two, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me if we saw him over in Milwaukee. If we saw him, you know, with the Predators. So they've David Poyle has shown, and the, and the scouting department too has shown that they can find really good players in the later rounds. Look at Victor Arvidsson and Matthias Ekholm. UC Saros, Pecorine, yeah. Pecorine was taken. Pecorine was taken in a round that no longer exists. Yeah. So if anyone's good at finding, unearthing that hidden talent in the later rounds, it's Nashville. So having those, you know, third, fourth, fifth round draft picks, it's almost like having a second or third round draft pick for for normal teams because their scouting department is just so good. Yeah. No. I, they 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 find diamonds in the rough all the time. I mean, they found Ailey Tolman at thirtieth. Overall, how he fell that far, I still don't understand. Oh, it's absurd! It. It's completely absurd. But yeah, I all think the, all the draft uh, scouting magazines that read had him in the, in the top ten or twelve. Yeah, the fact I, he fell to thirty is just yeah, crazy. Yeah, so they can find gems wherever they can, and I think a lot of their draft picks have really worked out in recent years. So, you know, I think this is a big year to restock the pipeline, especially because last year they had almost nothing out of the draft. They they really didn't do much. They traded most of their picks. They traded their very first pick for a, for a pick later on, like 20 picks later, which was just crazy because you already missed the first three rounds. Yeah, yeah. So this year is a big year for them to kind of restock it, have your, your more typical draft, I would say. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Road to Nashville podcast. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at mpatrickg5, at CutlerKline, at Radio. I want to thank Andrew Berkshire for joining us. Make sure to follow him on Twitter as well, at Andrew Berkshire. And thank you for listening. Listen what I say.